Welcome, this is Dirt to Dollars, hosted by your local county extension agents, where we talk everything agriculture. Welcome back to this week's edition of Dirt to Dollars. This is the week of June the 29th, and I've got with me this week again our co-hosts, our, our steady co-hosts, Matt Adams in Hardin County and Daniel Carpenter in LaRue County. Good morning, guys. How are you hey, all? Hey, what's going on? Hey, hey. All right, we've got, uh, we've actually got a couple of different things going on today. We have a interview later on in the podcast with uh, Kevin Laurent, who's a, an extension specialist in Princeton. He's got some cool topics, but we've got a few other things that have happened, current events, as in like just this weekend, current events that we need to talk about uh, before we get to that interview. Like water. Uh, like water. Yeah, water. <laughs> uh, I don't I know. I mean, the beggars can't be choosers, right? Right. So like I'm not yeah. I'm not gonna complain, but man, we got a lot of water. I said we cursed ourselves last week talking about how dry it was, and then here I went and got there are some places in our county I think they got around eight inches of rain. It was pretty rough, but our average eight. I think was about four. Yeah. Well, Ooh. we had flooding in Caneyville and there were some people that had to be over here by the fairgrounds flooded. It was it was pretty rough here in this area. We had uh had a little over four at my house and I think that was kind of the further west and the further south you went, the the heavier the rain was. Yeah. But it was I mean, it was coming down. There there was water standing in places on my farm that I've never seen it stand. It covered the Western Kentucky Parkway for a little while. So they yeah, I heard right. about that. That's, right. I had a, a friend in Bowling Green that said he was somewhere around five, six, mm-hmm. six and a half inches rain, and they had yeah. he was sharing some pictures. A lot of stuff washed out. And yeah, I think a lot, I, a lot of water to get it in a short amount of time. Short amount I think of time. That's the big thing. Yes. Well, and it was weird because what I noticed is that it ponded up and stayed high for a long time, and then it was just almost i'd use the analogy of it was like you flushed the toilet and it was just gone. All gone and it's which i mean where i live and in this part of the world uh you know really all three of our counties we have a lot of sinkholes and and kind yeah. of natural drainage i guess you'd call Karst it topography mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so it's i guess it just kind of flooded those caves and stuff and and once they all kind of flushed out it just all went down at once yeah. it's good they flushed good there wasn't no That's backups right. <laughs> yeah. yeah didn't have to get the plunger <laughs> out or right I know down, even down around McLean County and Union, Henderson, some of those areas got quite a bit of rain yesterday too. I was looking at some pictures of the crops and, you know, it's like you said, it's uh, it just it's like one hit after another. So 2020 is providing us with a lot of interesting things this year. So speaking about it, <laughs> interesting things in 2020, I did something weird over the weekend. Oh yeah. What'd you do? We ate at a restaurant for the what? first time in three months, sat down and ate. Wow. It wow. <laughs> uh it was kind of kind of different. I know, isn't it? Well, but you know, I always I told my husband this the other day. I said I bet now is probably the cleanest these restaurants have probably ever been. So now would be an okay time to go. <laughs> Here's what we did: we we went to the Mexican restaurant. Yeah. And I didn't pay any attention to it. We had to go to the grocery and run some errands while we were out. And we got home, and my wife looks at me and she says, "You know what?" She said, they must really be cleaning a whole lot more. She said, we don't smell like Mexican food. You know how when you go to yes. a Mexican restaurant, you come out and you smell like yes, it? Yes, yes. You didn't smell like it. So I think, I think they're really deep cleaning a little more than, than they were. And, and I would even say even like gas station bathrooms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're like mm-hmm. spotless. I was really surprised. I had to take a trip to Ohio over the weekend and stopped a few times. And I just, like, man, mm-hmm. these bathrooms are clean and look like they had probably weren't normally clean yeah. not 
judging just saying yeah. the obvious yeah. and uh yeah so i was i was kind of i'm noticing that a lot more like man things are really clean yeah. now we traveled too and that was that was it we we had to stop at a couple of gas stations too and i thought the same exact thing <laughs> so my 21 month old daughter uh she was sitting in the high chair while we were waiting on her food and she would just like gawk at people and stare and mm-hmm. and we were trying to figure out like why is she just so mesmerized then we got to realize that she's only 21 months old the last three months of her life she hadn't people. Hadn't really seen seen people. Mm-hmm. Hadn't been out in public a whole lot. I know so, it. And she, she's a people watcher mm-hmm. anyway, so she was she was taking it all in last night. Another thing that 2020 has brought us though is, I mean, we've survived another disaster, right? Yeah. Like, did we did we survive the Saharan dust? Storm? I guess so. I think I survived it. Yeah, I, I did notice though that, of course, I spent most of my day outside on Saturday and. you could tell it was definitely hazy. It was weird because it wasn't really sunny, but it wasn't raining at the time. Now, obviously it rained later on, but I was like, is this the dust? And I guess it was, it was just kind of interesting to see it. So is it like free fertilizer? Because they say when that dust settles, like in the ocean, it fertilizes the ocean and it helps, you know, to get plant life. So are we going to see any yield bumps? I wouldn't think there's much fertility in dust from the Saharan desert, but that's just, well, and how much of it did, did it not just move on, you know, and then the rain, you know, it came kind of went with the rain, I guess. I don't know. I'm pretty sure some of it ended up in my lungs. (laughs) I've got pretty bad allergies anyway, but I was, I was coughing pretty bad come Saturday night and I'd, I'd stayed out in it quite a bit on Saturdays. Well, we, I think that if you had any sort of asthmatic issues or if you have lung issues, I know my grandmother said she could, she's got all kinds of lung issues and she said she could really tell a difference this weekend. So I think, you know, if you survived that, just let's, you know, 2020, it's only halfway through the year. (laughs) (laughs) What else you got for us? Speaking of weather, did you all see fun fact? I saw over the weekend that they're going to remake our favorite weather movie. Did you see that? Twister. They're going to remake Twister. Oh, cool. Uh, well, what have they not remade? Well, that's, well. Yeah, but see, it just won't be but the same the, with Bill Paxton. The remakes Paxson. are never yeah. as good. No. I just don't think it'll be the same without Bill Paxton. So I think it'll it'll be good. But... It'll probably be full of global warming stuff that I'll just have to <laughs> not listen to. <laughs> hey, who knows with with what's going on? Who knows? So I think that about covers everything that we've kind of had going on in our worlds this week, but uh, let's go on and move in now. We've got a a really good interview planned here with Kevin Laurent, extension beef specialist based out of Princeton. Glad you could join us today. Kevin, how are you? Doing fine. I'm glad to be with y'all. Been, been, been hearing good things about this (laughs) dirt to dollars deal. Pretty good, pretty good, uh, pretty good program y'all got going here. All right. Well, we, we like to start out by asking our specialists kind of how you uh, made it to Kentucky because uh, you can't see on video the the audio. You can't see it, but you're wearing an LSU hat. I, I uh, wasn't going to say I was getting ready to bring that up. I don't know what's going on with wow. the LSU hat, but I have a feeling we're going to find out. So we're going to we want to we want to know about your background. Well, you know, I was promised by Whitney this morning that there would be no video, you know, but hey, you, you've already, you've already ratted me out here. So, all right, let's talk about a little bit of LSU, you know, of course, I'm a little proud right now after the That's season. That's right. Probably the greatest season ever for any college team. Okay, I'll quit there. I will tell you this, for all you UK fans, and I'm a UK fan, mm-hmm. but in 2007, 
me and my whole tribe. And if y'all all know me, we I've got five kids. Uh-huh. We were in person, thanks to Dr. Roy Burris, who gave us <laughs> some tickets. And then we bought a couple of tickets when we got there. We were all in the stadium at Commonwealth when LSU was ranked number one. It just beat Florida and came to Commonwealth Stadium and in triple overtime lost the UK. Mm-hmm. Now, we were all wearing our hideous <laughs> LSU garb, you know, and we're trying to take our sweatshirts <laughs> off and run for the, for the car after the thing was over. But, yeah, I was going to say, uh, I didn't right. see we, you on the field at the end of that game. I no, don't remember seeing yeah. you down there. <laughs> we did not jump over the wall. No. <laughs> so, uh, uh, we, we but did. that's a cool, that's a cool memory there. So, yeah. uh, and I do, I'll tell you one last thing about that. My son-in-law, Renee's husband, uh, we've got a running, kind of a running joke that, uh, I keep saying, you know, one of these days LSU and UK are going to meet for the SEC championship with football. And he says, well, you know, if that happens, he says, I'm buying the tickets. I said, all right, we're uh, going. So, yeah, you know, it can happen. It could. You never know. UK's on the rise, I think. So, yeah, we hope so. Anyway. But now, I, how I got here, how did I get to Kentucky? Well, of course, I'm born and raised in Louisiana, and my wife, Colette, is too. She's actually from Pierre Park, which is where the swamp people <laughs> <laughs> show us this from. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so I was coaching the judging team at LSU, and we used to travel a lot. Well, actually, one time UK hosted, UT Martin hosted. We had these regional contests, uh, judging contests, and then Ohio State, Virginia Tech. So a lot of times our travels, we'd come through Kentucky to work out headed to competition. And so I got to know people like Gordon Jones and – Scott Shockey and so I'm dating myself now because that was in the late 80s, you know, when Scott Shockey was coaching at UK. And so I got to know a lot of folks here and and it was kind of neat. One time I had, we took a break and we were at Keeneland in April and I took the team to Keeneland that afternoon and, well, of course it was springtime in Kentucky. Everything was beautiful and it was like a year before I finished grad school and I said, I said, man, you know, this place is pretty. I said, I could see myself if I had to move somewhere, I could see myself moving to Kentucky, living in Kentucky. And that was really weird because two years later, I was living in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we There was a job came open for – at that time, it was for the swine testing, performance testing job. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was in the early 90s. And uh, anyway, actually, Gordon Jones told me about it. And uh, so I sent my resume up to UK and, uh, and got the job. And I guess the rest is history, so they say. So – Anyway, but yeah, we we love Kentucky. It's a great place to raise kids, and so um, really don't ever see ourselves going back. We miss the food and the family, you know, in Louisiana. Yeah. But other than that, it's it's been a great great place to raise our family. Yeah. Well, we we knew we had to hassle hassle you a little bit about Louisiana. <laughs> well, so. I, I shouldn't have wore that. Yeah, so y'all got me. So anyway. That's all right. Be proud yeah. of where you're from. So, but you you said you started out in the swine um, section or sector of of uk but now you're with beef uh and work with the beef producers here in the state as well and so you actually do several different programs i actually worked with you quite a bit on a beef irm project with um with doing some reproductive and working with ai with some beef producers but you've got a new program going out uh, and you want to explain a little bit about that it's uh, the pvap program yeah pvap it's a post Post uh, weaning value added program, it's uh, we call it PVAP. And there's two versions of it: one for feedlot and one for precondition. 
Mm-hmm. And over the years, you know, when I came to work at, at Princeton with Dr. Burris, of course, a, a big part of working with him was working with the CPH sales and the preconditioned sales. And so I've learned from the best from that standpoint. And uh, what the PVAP thing is, is just trying to get folks who have never either preconditioned calves before selling or, um, you know, sent cattle to the feedlot to actually you know, give them a little monetary incentive, but also kind of do a little bit of monitoring and help them through that process. You know, over the years, I guess you could say Dr. Burris was way ahead of his time. I mean, him and Iowa State and Virginia Tech were probably the only ones really kind of pushing preconditioning back in the 80s. And you can see now that the, the whole industry has come around to that. And, you know, there's a premium being paid for these winged calves. And so, but we still see a lot of balling, unweaned balling calves go to the yard and, and, and really taking some discounts. So it's better for the cattle. It's better, I think, for the bottom line of the producers to go ahead and wean them, put some cheap gain on those calves before they sell them. And so what we're trying to do is get folks to do that and capture some of those benefits. Now, people who have been doing that may be taking advantage of CPH and those type sales who maybe want to go the next step and, and send cattle to the feedlot uh, we've got the feedlot version of that. And what we do is we tap in the program that Matt's real uh, involved in, the Tri-County uh, Steer for Futurity program that Iowa State started. And so we'll send cattle up there to, I guess it's Southwest Iowa, is usually where they'll feed. That allows folks to get their feet wet. You know, they might only have five or 10 head and can get be part of a semi-load that'll go up there and go to the feedlot and get feedlot and carcass data and that kind of thing. So the the precondition program gives you $30 per head incentive payment up to $1,000. The feedlot program gives you $75 a head up to $750. And so those monies are all uh, made available through the Ag Development Board. It's an Ag Development Board program where the money came from there and then we run that through KBN. So Kentucky Beef Network is helping us administer the program also. What are some of the requirements on each version of those programs, Kevin? Well, I'll start with the preconditioned. We really want people who have never preconditioned cattle before, who have never weaned and actually tried to precondition. Now, I mean, we, we leave that that rule, if you will, a little bit gray. I mean, you know, if folks maybe had a bad experience with it 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, you know, our CPH numbers peaked, oh, I don't know, in the uh, mid 2005, six, seven range, we were up to 30 plus thousand calves a year. Well, now we're down to about 10,000. And so it's, it's kind of waning. Now there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, we've got other stockyards that have come up with their own precondition programs and that's good because that's what extension's all about. We model things and if industry can grab it and, and go with it, uh, that's, 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 that's better. You know, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So I know in y'all's area, the, there's a, was it the yellow tag program uh, there at Irvington Stockyard? Yeah. Uh, of course, we have CPH toward over toward Lexington for y'all's area and then up in Owensboro. Some of y'all would, mm-hmm. would maybe go there. And then Glasgow, maybe in the southern part. I don't know, Daniel, maybe your, some of your Hodgenville folks might go to Glasgow. Uh, they've got a farmer elite sale, but some of those sales have kind of cut into the, some of the CPH numbers, but that's fine. I mean, the, it's the concept is still solid and, and, and good and it's getting folks to, to do that. So, so yeah, Matt, for your question again, people who have never done it or have had a bad experience with it or, or whatever the case may be, we're trying to get them, I don't know, re, re-energized toward the concept 
to try. And what we'll try to do is say, if for instance, Matt is someone in your county uh, wanted to do it, we'd go out to their farm, look at their facilities, make sure, you know, start from ground zero. Do they even have a pen that can hold a ball and calf? You know, a lot of us have a pen we can catch cows in and sort calves and send them to the yard, but do we have something we can actually keep that ball and calf in? And then and we'll talk to the producer about how to feed them right, how to get the best gain for that 50, 60 days they're going to hold them before they sell them. And, you know, just, just walk them through the whole process. The other requirement, Matt, is we want them to catch weights. We want initial weights. And it could be truck weights. It could be, you know, they could load the whole uh, group of calves up and run over some truck scales at the co-op or wherever, at the fertilizer dealer, wherever there's some, some truck scales, get a group weight. That, that would suffice. And then and then we'll catch the pay weights whenever we sell and, uh, and actually track the dollars and cents. And when they turn in their expenses and the weights, I'll actually have a little closeout that I calculate with a spreadsheet, you know, calculating, did you make any money with this, this part of the enterprise? Did it add any net added value to your calves? And so that's how we do that. So, uh, uh, now, as far as the feedlot deal, it's just the same kind of concept. People who have never really fed cattle before uh, is kind of who we're targeting. But we're really wanting folks who have preconditioned calves before. We'd hate to take them from, you know, always selling balling calves all the way to feedlot. That's a big step. And I think we need to, yeah. that precondition is a good interim step there. And when you talk about preconditioning calves, can you just give just a real quick definition i guess on what you're talking about there what what you're expecting the producer to do as far as that goes yeah absolutely uh preconditioning is just kind of a catch-all general term for getting that calf ready or preconditioning him if you will to get ready to go to the next phase and most of the time it's it's going to the feedlot or it could be stopping at a background or say uh you know segment but what that you're trying to get that calf to transition from being at mama's side and then you're taking, you know, those calves, we ask them a lot. And probably the biggest stress besides being born in a calf's life is weaning. Okay. So a lot of times, just think of the typical calf, you know, sold a balling calf. We pin it up probably on a Sunday night if there's a Monday sale. You know, a lot of us work off the farm. We pin that calf, you know, those cows up. We sort the calves. We haul them to the sale barn. Some of them might stand in the sale barn from Sunday night to Monday morning before they get sold sometime on Monday. And the whole time they're looking for mama, you know, and they're balling and their, their life has just been, you just rock their world, you know? And so, uh, so, but along with that, from a health standpoint, not only are you, it's like mixing kindergarten kids together first day of school, you know, they're trading germs and bugs with other cattle in the stockyard. They don't have any immunity. They probably haven't been vaccinated for much of anything, maybe black leg. And then, they're balling, looking for mom. They might be a water pen that they're in at the sale barn. The sale barn's doing the best they can, but that calf maybe has never drank out of a trough before. And really, eating and drinking is the last thing on its mind. It's just looking for mom. And so then that calf gets dehydrated. So not only you've stressed it, it's dehydrated, it's traded germs with other, other calves, and then we take it and put it on a truck and truck it somewhere for the next phase of its life. And that's just a lot of stress. So preconditioning, we try to get the weaning process done on the farm, get some immunity built up by a good vaccination program on the farm, and then have a, in, in the other requirement, I guess I failed to mention, Matt, 
we want these calves that are in the precondition program to sell in some kind of preconditioned sale. It doesn't have to be CPH. It can be farmer lead. It could be yellow tag. It could be red tag on our end of the state in there at the Ledbetter yard. So it could just sell it in some kind of preconditioned program that is looking for preconditioned calves. And uh, in, in general, those kind of programs will give a premium for a calf that's had all that done to it. So that calf's ready to hit the ground running and not, you know, like those stresses are behind it and have been taken care of at the home farm where the calf was, was born. And so that, that helps a whole lot just in animal health. And then, and then that will affect the, the performance of that calf. You know this from all the calves you fed out in the feedlot. That's going to help that calf perform all the way through to slaughter, you know, through the whole end phase of its, of its life. So. Well, and, and I was going to say, I know that back when you all started the whole preconditioning push in the state, I know Kentucky kind of had a little bit of a bad rap because we did do that so much. We did send balling calves and they were getting out to the feed yards in Kansas, Iowa and wherever and dying because of what you just said. So I think that it's come, our reputation has really been pushed to the next level. We're doing a lot better now because of these programs. Yeah, and that, that's a good point, Whitney. I, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because when I first came in the early 90s, we were still working on getting that ready. You know, Dr. Burr, that was his life's, mm-hmm. his life's work from an extension standpoint is getting that, mm-hmm. working against that reputation and trying to change that. And, and you know, he, he likes to tell the story. They were on a feedlot tour back in those times. And uh, and one of the feedlot buyers said, you know, somebody asked him, what do you think of Kentucky cattle? And he says, well, I think they're, I think, I think they're short black and they must be born pregnant. <laughs> so, <laughs> little short black heifer calves that would come out there and end up being pregnant in the field, yeah. you know, which is a disaster to have happen. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the reputation that we had way back when, but that has changed. And I'm going to tell you not to just plug ag development board funds and tobacco cost set- settlement, but, uh, I know Grayson County, and I'm, I can't speak for all three of y'all's counties, but I know Grayson County at one uh, for sure. I don't know how many facilities got built, handling facilities got built in mm-hmm. Grayson County uh, mm-hmm. back when that started. Uh, I know, I know, Jack Ewing used to always write yep. about who was ninety something or a hundred something facilities. I was gonna say it's it's over a hundred for sure. Yes, and so you've got that, and then you've got you've got. Um, Oh gosh, hay facilities, so we're feeding better. We we know how to feed these 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 uh, byproducts better. So you know this thing is easier. Really, it's easier to do from a, from that standpoint. I think than even back in the eighties when when Dr. Burris and Dr. Johns and all them were trying to get the thing going. I think we've got some resources now. More people are equipped yeah, to do this thing. And, uh, and so and a lot of that is due to the Ag Development Board at Tobacco Settlement and where that emphasis went. You know, we can criticize different aspects and details and programs that didn't work, but, you know, that's that program in, it, as a whole has really, really helped the cattle industry in Kentucky. And, uh, I mean, I, and I've been here long enough. That's one good thing about having some gray hair. I've been here long enough to see see both sides of that, you know. And so, not every state was, was fortunate to have that, enough to have that money put to that use. So. That that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, well, Tennessee, you know, I think it went to their general fund at the outset, and then when they saw how successful Kentucky was earmarking a portion of it for agriculture, 
then they change theirs. And now they've got a good program, you know, or call share program. And it's like you said, it's allowed for you all on the research level to do some of these projects on the farm level that have helped add value to production agriculture in the state. You mentioned, Kevin, that you uh, you do a little bit of a closeout for the for the precondition group. And I know we get some closeouts from Tri-County on the feedlot groups. What are you seeing? I know you've only ran a few groups through each program so far, but is it is it generally making money? Is it successful? Yeah, we range, and I, I should have had that thing on my spreadsheet where I had the real numbers in front of me. We ranged from um, oh, as little as about $40 net return to hit up to like $130. And um, what's interesting is, and we've got some, we've got some producers and I'm going to say made a mistake or two mm-hmm. and they know it. It mm-hmm. was, it was, it was certain things like, well, not cutting their calves until weaning. And so then their get their steers didn't gain, didn't have enough time really to recover. Um, so they, their heifers actually outgained their steers. That's one example. The other example is a producer that decided had some pretty marginal hay and decided to go with a 12% protein ration instead of a 14% protein ration. I mean, you, and that that hurt a little bit on performance. Ooh, so yeah. We've had some of that. We had a few market turns that turned against them. But in general, I think the overall average, uh, Matt, was around $70 for uh, this first year of it. And the ones who made the most money actually were the ones who held their kids over to the first, after the first of the year. They weaned them in the fall and then held them over and sold them in January. And that was, those had the highest returns, which is kind of interesting. And I know I don't want to get, you can never, you can never guarantee markets. I mean, Mm-mm. you get, you can get, you can get in trouble predicting markets, but you know, Kenny Burdine has a lot of data that shows that in most years, it's going to pay to hold those calves yeah. after the first of the year, mm-hmm. those spring born calves, you know, uh, and a lot of people have a lot of good reasons for selling in December. But if there's any way you can sell a poor, at least a portion of them after the first of the year, a lot of times that market's going to reward you for that. And personally, I background calves, and I used to always buy calves November and December. And I guess as I've gotten more busy, you know, busier with with my job, my real job, and then life in general, you know, it seems like it's January before I can get my calves put together that I'm going to run that year. And um you know, every year when I got to buy in January, it seems like I'm paying more for them than I could have bought them for in December. So that, that alone tells you, um, you know, so I, it, it's, it's an interesting, what's, what I like about it is that closeout shows them what they did. And then we can sit down with those producers after and say, okay, how could we have done this better or tweaked it better? I had one guy, wanted to, he just wanted to feed straight corn and run them on rye cover crop. Problem is, he didn't have any rye cover crop. It was like mm. it was high, and there wasn't enough dry matter out there for the kid to eat. But that was what he was going to do. And so they fed all this straight corn. And then when I could show him from the ration balancer, okay, if we'd have fed a uh, you know fourteen percent ration in your hay, or even on the rye with a little hay on the side, you know they would have gained another three quarters of a pound or something. You know, and that those are the kind of things yeah. that we can show people black and white and I think yeah that's, that's the, that seems like that's the important part well, of this program is it can it's a good learning opportunity and and I like that you're breaking it down on an individual basis like that and being able to 
to show mm-hmm. what's working and, and what's not, maybe not working so well. And you've got some tools that you all use, you know, specific for a producer. You can plug in if they've got resources on their farm, like you said, like I had rye or if somebody's got bin corn or whatever, you can work that into a ration for them. So they're saving a little bit of money on the, on the front end to allow for, to offset some of that. Absolutely. So yep. yeah, I, I think it's a good program. Do you want to talk just a minute about, cause you said you background some calves yourself, but you, you do it. Do you want to, do you mind to run through that a little bit and just see yeah, how I mean, if y'all think that's interesting, I mean, we can, yeah, I, I think I you kind of talk do a it. whole lot about myself, you know, as far as personal stuff in terms of that goes, because I, I think we can get caught up in that as extension educators. But you've got a different way of looking yeah, at I mean, it. And it's something that I think yeah, makes people look so outside the box a little bit. It's interesting. Well, yeah, it kind of evolved. And I, I got, I hate to say this and I hope John Johnson can <laughs> This, so I, can t- <laughs> I hate to say this, but I got to give John John credit for the idea. So, uh, no, I mean, moving to Kentucky, we didn't have fescue in South Louisiana. And so fescue was kind of a neat grass. I thought when I saw that you could stockpile it and hold it and whatnot. And, you know, I just talking to, uh, to John, John's one time, this was again, mid to late nineties, you know, and he was saying, you know, well, we've done some stalker work on stockpile grass and, to where they actually wintered them with very little hay and very little feed. And that kind of intrigued me because, you know, down home we had to plant ryegrass to have anything to, to, that was stocker quantity, mm-hmm. you know, that you could put some gain on calves. And so, uh, you know, that's an expensive plant ryegrass. I mean, I like ryegrass and all, but anytime you plant an annual, you know, you're planting something, you got some a little bit more risk in it. So what we've decided, what we started doing, <coughs> excuse me, I, uh, what I do is basically is is buy calves like the, the original model is buy calves November or December, kind of dry lot them that first thirty days, and then we're buying light calves. You know, three uh, heavy threes are are they're hard to get now, but four weights, light fours, um, and then but but backgrounding them, getting them getting getting them straight. Now these would be those high risk balling calves that we talked about. Very few of these will be the wing calves, so I'm trying to buy those calves a little cheap because I'm going to hold them a long time. And I'm going to try to put three or 400 pounds on them and have them a, be a heavy yearling ready to go to the feedlot whenever I sell them. So if I'm buying in, say, December, that's historically the lows for light calves is in that October, November, December period. And I'm going to try to sell where historically the highs for big yearlings are, is usually in you know uh, July, August, September, going into the corn harvest. They, you know, that's, there's a lot of reasons why big yearlings, uh, you know, are more attractive then. So anyway, that's the deal. And from a forage standpoint, doing that, I let the place, the, 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 the ground that I have, the pasture I have does not have any cattle on it, uh, from say August through, through, uh, December, you know, August, August through November, at least. And so that's a good stockpiling time of the year. And so we get enough rainfall, then the whole farm is stockpiling. So now I've got an ample supply of forage. I can buy those calves in December, start grazing really in earnest, end of December, beginning of January, and take them, have enough stockpile grass to get that set of calves through the winter and into spring grass. And then, and then of course, you'd be a more conventional rotational grazing uh, on the spring grass through the summer. And so it's worked good. It's, it's a long, you know, gains have been year in, year out on steers. Your gains will be about 1.6 pay weight to pay weight. And that's not going to get anybody excited. But 
it's it's a really cheap gain, and you know you can put gain, you can put gain on calves is is how efficient you're putting it on there. How you know the shorter the term you have calves, the quicker you got you need them to grow, because total gain is what offsets. That's what puts dollars in your pocket. How you put that gain on is is the key, and so uh, you know you can grow them long and slow, or you can grow them quick and fast. And there's there's advantages at different times of the year, different market conditions that'll you know favor one method or the other. What I like about this method is it's very conservative. I don't spend a lot of money on feed or hay. I don't have hay equipment, so I buy enough hay to get through ice events or deep snows. And uh, you know the most I've ever fed hay knock on wood has been two weeks continuously. You know, we had a pretty bad uh, snow event one time, but most of the time it's uh, three or four or five days and we're back to grazing. You know, the snow cover, the ice cover is gone and we're back to grazing stockpile grass. So it's a cheaper way to do it. It's a conservative way to do it. The downside is two downsides. One is you're tying up, in our case, 50 acres for 70 calves. You're tying up 50 acres all year long for one load of calves. Uh, whereas somebody who's doing a more feed-based background and system might could run two or three sets of calves in that time period. The other thing is it is dependent on rainfall in the fall to get enough stockpile grass. And so years that we've had drought, you know, I, instead of buying in December, I might, the latest I've ever bought was February, you know. So I just buy later to match what available grass I have to, you know, to use for that part of the winter, depending on, on what kind of amount of stockpile grass I have. So, but it's been good. It, it was, it's been a, it's been, it, it's a very low cost, uh, lower break even type system. And uh, it's not for everybody, but I mean, it's a, I'm kind of a grass nerd. And my kids say I'm a grass nerd. Forages. I think, you know, if I did it all over again, I'd probably be a forage specialist, you know, but, uh, but anyway, I, that's why you, that's why you and Chris get along. That's so why well, I mean, old Chris and Jimmy and you know, all of them. Yeah. We all, I kind of, I kind of get that grass nerd thing every now and then. So. Well, and what I like about that and what you've done is I know you've also worked with some folks out that way and, uh, you kind of get people thinking a little differently about fescue and about stockpiled fescue and how we need mm-hmm. to, how we need to use that. Uh, cause I know you've worked some with some cow calf guys as well about, about ch- kind of changing their thoughts on how to, how to use stockpiled tall fescue, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and that's interesting. You bring that up and we don't want to talk about David Farkman too much. <laughs> I guess we'll have to, uh, <laughs> I convinced now. I will tell you this. I convinced him to try an idea back in '06. Yeah, it was the fall of '06, mm-hmm. and um, and I figured if I can convince him to try something really different, then I've really done something. Because <laughs> y'all know David, he's he's pretty hard headed. So, uh, and I will send him a link to this. So he can hear it. Anyway, um, okay. Nah, he's a good. If good you don't, I will. Life. Yeah. What you know? After doing several years of this stalker thing. And, and seeing what stockpile grass can do and then seeing what stockpile grass tests from a nutrient standpoint through the winter, I thought, you know, why can't we do something with this with cows? And we always, if, you know, since I've been here, you know, encourage cow-calf folks to stockpile some pasture. It's hard to do in a way because you got to inventory that cow herd. The advantage to my system is I don't have any cattle during the stockpiling period. I've sold them, okay? So there's nothing on the farm. In a cow-calf situation, we don't have that luxury because we've got to inventory that cow herd all the time. So 
Um, yeah, the thing with with so I, I and, and then another thing down home in deep south, we would plant ryegrass, and that was our best grass for the whole year. So when you would plant ryegrass, you did one of two things: you either put stalker calves on it, or you save that ryegrass for when your cow started calving. And so down there, we'll start calving a lot of times December, January, and so you would plant ryegrass in the in the fall. And then you would wait and you kept your wires hot and didn't let the cows get in it, you know, and you fed hay until they start calving. And then when you get three or four or five pairs, then you would sort your pairs and start moving pairs, cows, wet cows, lactating cows onto your ryegrass. And that's kind of how you did it. And, you know, a lot of, I mean, that, that ryegrass was so precious uh, resource there. So, you know, in a way, I think we probably don't think of our stockpile fescue in a, in a good enough light from that standpoint. And so the idea was, how about if we wean calves in September and then dry lotted or fed hay, you could either put them on your worst paddock or you could dry lot them. In, in David's situation, we chose to dry lot them. But dry lot and feed hay during the fall and let the whole farm stockpile. And so that's what we did. And we did that in the fall of 06. And he chose to put his, he had a good feeding pad, one of those good cost share feeding facilities. So he, he had two big commodity barns, you know, the commodity cost share hay barn type deals. I don't know what the dimensions were, how many rolls he had, but he would fill those two barns up every year, hay, for his supply. And so he had two barns of hay full and, and then he had this dry lot. And so uh, he started feeding these cows about the middle of September and he fed them all the way to almost the end of December. I tried to get him to hold off until the first of the year, but it was just killing him. And we had a great, I mean, grass was everywhere. These cows are in the dry lot. Of course, they're dry, you know. But those cows gained over 100 pounds in the dry lot just on hay. No protein blocks, no protein supplements, just on hay. And that hay tested like 10% protein, 51% TDN, which is not bad, bad hay, great but it's not great hay. But it's, it's like a lot of the hay we have to put up climate you know mm-hmm. so so he did that and so then he started strip grazing his farm he had the whole farm and we had a great stockpiling fall so that part worked out sometimes it just pays to be lucky you know and it was a lot of rainfall and we had a tour come up from tennessee and these people thought he was crazy that fall he said look at all this grass why you why are you feeding hay you know and so we tried to explain to him what we were doing so he strips grazed this all the way through and he made it all the way through to spring grass, uh, you know, with his stockpile. It never fed any more hay after that. So in years, he said he would feed nearly both barns every year. He only fed one barn full of hay. See, a dry cow's not going to eat as much as a wet mm-hmm. cow. Plus, you're feeding it at a drier time of the year. You're probably not wasting as much just getting it done. So anyway, all that advantage. Now, what happened? <laughs> Again, pays to be lucky. What happened in the spring of '07? Y'all are old enough to remember <laughs> freeze. Yeah. The the Easter yes. freeze. So the Easter freeze yes. came and knocked a hole in the hay crop. And uh, you know, and so what and then what happened in the summer of 07 was the drought. So we had the Easter freeze and then the drought. Mm-hmm. And he had a whole barn full of hay that he normally wouldn't have had at that time of the year when everybody was running around looking for hay he was able to to get through it and that sold him on it. And he's done some variation or version of this concept since, 
Uh, now he's doing a, and you may want to get him on here in a few months, you know, at the end of the summer, he's doing a little experiment right now, actually drilling sorghum Sudan in existing fescue sod and going to try to see if he can, if he can increase carrying capacity without hurting his fescue sod, uh, which is kind of interesting. But, but David, you know, I, I'm picking at, at David, he is, you know, he's an innovator and I mean, that's, I think he's, he's willing to try new things. I'm, I'm giving him too much grief for being hard-headed he is hard-headed but uh, but anyway so now it, it worked pretty good and so and if you think about it it matches our fescue normally tests over 10 percent 11 12 13 percent protein uh, our stockpile fescue and you know right at 60 or a little better on tdn and that's the requirements for lactating cow and a lot of times we're using it back in October, November, when our cows are dry. It seems like we're just doing it in reverse. We should maybe flip-flop that or consider yeah. it. And if you don't want to go as drastic as what we did with David's project, you may want to just set up, you know, make yourself set aside one field, you know, maybe one 20-acre field, and then just don't touch it. Don't graze it in the fall. Just don't touch it. Start feeding hay maybe a little sooner and save that one field for when you start calving and be able to calve some cows out on green grass instead of around muddy hay feeding area. And that might, that might sell you on the concept too. And that, that's how I try to encourage people to give it a try. Uh, even if it's just 10, 15, 20 acres, just save it. Just don't, don't graze it. Just keep the gate shut and treat it like we used to do our ryegrass down home. So just food for thought. There's all kinds of ways to do it. That's, that's just always been eye opening to me to hear you talk about fescue. You know, we, we all kind of grew up, with fescue having a bad rap and, and, you know, I kind of grew up and went through school and everything as the end of fight friendly and end of fight free fescues were coming out and, and kind of a, a big push to, to get rid of tall, common tall Kentucky 31. And, and, and right. I've learned, you know, as I got older, just kind of work with what God gave you and, and, and it, and it's got some benefit. It's a, hey, hey, I, I agree with you, but I, I will tell you this, man, I'm kind of, I'm getting on board this novel end of fight thing. I don't think we all should convert to to novel end of fight. I think we've got some tough hillsides and tough ground, rough ground. We probably need to let Kentucky 31 do its tough job that it does for us, holding everything together. But uh, I know my partner in our stalker thing, I've got a partner. He's got you know about 15 acres of – it's more like 12 acres, I guess. But anyway, of uh, some novel end of fight. And that's where we put we, – we bring our little fuzzy calves, the ones that are kind of falling behind, aren't looking too good. We'll take them over to his place, and uh, and they'll make the load. I mean, they'll they'll turn around and gain. They'll gain – best we can tell, they're gaining a half a pound better than the cattle on, on my original where I've got the dirty fescue. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's not for everybody, but I think the novel thing has got some – it's got some potential. It really does, especially on the stalker side, right. or even if you just had some novel and some breeding pastures, you know, uh, on a cow calf yeah. deal, I think it's, it's worth considering, but yeah, you're right. That fescue, it, it's got its problems, but I think, I think you're right. If we learn to work with it and use it correctly, man, it's, it's hard to beat. Really. Well, we're going to wrap it up. We, uh, Appreciate you coming on today and, and chatting with us about a very various different things. I think you guys got a lot of good programming going on, um, your department especially, and working with the BFIRM Ag Development Funds and with the county agents. And once again, we we appreciate you working out with us and going and 
visiting counties and working with our producers, especially. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. And, and I, I think you all as A&R group, y'all are the, y'all the glue. That's what keeps everybody connected to the clientele that that's why we, and, and you hear it time and time and time when we get through in crisis periods. I've heard it several times, you know, since I've been here in that, since 91, when it all said and done, it's the county level. It's the county level that keeps the support for extension is, and that's, that support for extension, it goes back to you all as county agent. So now, one last thing, I don't know if you want to add this in there, Daniel, or not, but um, I, I do want to kind of introduce Katie Van Valen, and I think y'all are going to have her later on. We got, we, I talked a lot yeah. about Dr. Burris, who, who I worked for for years. Um, of course, he's retired, and we've hired a new uh, extension nutritionist, uh, Dr. Katie Van Valen, and she's a, she's a Kentucky girl, and by way of Western, and then she went out to Virginia Tech and Iowa State to get her advanced degrees. But she's housed at Princeton, and she's she's going to be a really good asset, I think, for us. And, uh, be a good person to have on on a future episode of y'all's deal there. So yeah. we have we have plans for her. Good so deal. We're, good deal. <laughs> she's we we're excited to have her. I think she's going to do really great things here in the state and with, yep. with county yep. agents. Sounds good. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kevin. All we'll talk right. to you later. Right. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. For those of you all that are interested maybe in this PVAP program that he's talking about, uh, you can reach out to us as county agents or any county that you're in. Uh, reach out to your extension agent and they can help you get in contact with him and get that worked out. Because I do think it's a great program that we need to really continue to promote. Yeah, it is. So we've had a few participants here in Hardin County and then we've worked with Kevin out of the Hardin County office here on the retained ownership side of it, just trying to kind of help him out with our involvement mm -hmm. in, in the Tri-County Steer Carcass Futurity Program. But it's a, that was a really great interview with Kevin. It's a, I always like enjoy talking to him and having him in, in the County. Uh, I think we could have went on for a long mm -hmm. time with him. He's it's, yeah, it's we always went for neat. hours. Yeah. yeah. Just neat to have, he's such a boots on the ground type of specialist and, uh, I think that's when you can really learn something is is talking to somebody that's that's worked with producers and just kind of talks through exa examples and what he sees in those examples. I think that about well, wraps it up. Yeah. What do you what do you guys think? Yep, looks like we knocked another week yep. out. You guys uh, stay safe and hopefully it'll dry out for you all a little bit between now and the next time we talk. But not too much. <laughs> yeah. Have a good Fourth of July. All right, you too. You too. We'll see y'all.